My very first memory is of snow. In the great blizzard in 1947, the pipes froze and there was little to eat. My parents were away in the Bahamas, taking their first break from the drabness and rationing that followed six years of war, leaving me alone with Megan, my nanny, and Mr. and Mrs. Marta, who lived upstairs and kept the house clean and the garden free of weeds. When after six weeks in warmer weather, my mother returned with a tan, reeking of Nina Ricci, and bent down to greet me, I didn't recognize her, and she cried. My father did not witness the moment, going straight from the airport to his office. He was forever rushing. When I was 35, I left Britain for America and never returned. My father, Wolf, born in the lost Atlantis of Jewish Vienna in the years leading up to World War I, also fled westward, in his case a hop and skip ahead of Hitler. It was the short leap from Central Europe to England that saved his life. He was an energetic force of nature, love him or hate him, and there were many throughout his life in both camps, he was an impossible to ignore. I knew him as an overweight, enthusiastic bear of a man, a publisher of innovative, illustrated books, and a lover of lost causes. Though he had many affairs and their marriage was rocky, he adored my mother Catherine, his Gentile princess, with a burning passion until the day she died in 1985, just before Christmas. Wolf was in the habit of whistling to her. He would do it in the evening as he returned from work, two short notes and a longer lower one. He would whistle as he got out of his taxi, on the sidewalk, in the hall, and as he rushed up the stairs. It was plaintive, haunting, beautiful, bewitching, like human birdsong. Almost certainly unknown to him, it was Morse code for the letter U, which is the same sound as U. It was for her. I'm near you. I'm back with you. I'm home. Home was wherever she was. He loved her more than she loved him and was dead a few weeks later. I often heard him say, people die when they want to. In his case, it was true. After Catherine's death, he was bereft like an orphan child and lost the will to live. They were an odd couple, she an entitled upper-class Gentile, he a hustling Jew. The youngest of three boys, son of a doctor, Wolf experienced the chaos and defeat of World War I in which his two brothers fought. The collapse of the ancient Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was the bedrock of his parents' bourgeois world, and the early sudden death of a father whom he adored, all before he was ten. This series of shocks was followed by years of delinquency and depression that his poor, fraught, widowed mother was unable to control. He was sent to boarding school at twelve, so it is said, on the advice of Sigmund Freud, his late father's neighbor and medical school colleague. A boy needs a father, Freud explained to my distraught grandmother. If you do not intend to remarry, a boy's boarding school may be the next best thing. There were none in Austria, so she sent him to Germany with financial help from her brother. At Ettersberg, near Weimar, 
a high school for the sons of the Junker nobility, it happened that the future Nazi rocket engineer Werner von Braun was assigned as his roommate. They were both considered outsiders. The Prussian aristocrat, already dreaming of space, was a bedwetter, and Wolf the only Jew. The school paired them in a dorm designed for misfits. What could my grandmother have been thinking to allow her son to be bullied and beaten by future Nazi Gauleiters and SS bigwigs in a gloomy Turingian castle? Ettersberg was later the site of the concentration camp Buchenwald. Back in the Austrian capital, her widow's pension reduced to virtually zero by the post-war hyperinflation, she could not afford college for Wolf. So age 17, amidst the post-war upheaval, he was forced to go out to work. After five hard years in Germany, he plunged into journalism and street fighting. Peter, I don't know if that is the most beautiful watercolor portrait of a post-war childhood or the saddest story I've ever heard. And what I noticed in your rereading of it, because I've heard this story many times, is that, tell me if I've got this wrong, but your dad's high school became Buchenwald. Yes. Well, it was a castle. It was in Germany. It was near Weimar, where Goethe lived. And the German Nazi government turned it into what really was a prison. I mean, the early concentration camps were not about extermination. They were about incarceration. So there were communists, there were socialists, there were anti-Nazis of one kind or another there, as well as some Jews and some, you know, Russian spies and who knows who. Buchenwald was not a, an extermination camp. There were no gas chambers and there were no, um, you know, walls against which people were shot. But people were worked to death. They died there. They were beaten. Uh, it was horrible. And this was where your dad went to high school before yes, it became yes, that? Yes, yes, it was a famous German high school. It may have been the Eton of Germany. Was your father traumatized by the experience of being torn apart from his mother at an early age? I noticed the theme in this reading is your mother leaves you and you don't recognize her when she returns, but what you remember is our two sexualizing details, the perfume and the tan. Yeah. So she's returned not as a mother but as something yep. different. Yep, 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 that's true. Um, what, do you remember any more of that moment? Did you feel... No, I, I barely remember that moment. My mother told me about it, and I sort of vaguely remember it. There's, other, there's another part of that story when you tell it in person with a little whine, which is that you had attached to your nanny, who was then fired by your mother. But that's later in the book. Okay. Yes, my mother was very upset that I seemed, after those six weeks when she was away to have bonded with my nanny, and I seemed to love my nanny more than I seemed to love her. So she fired the nanny. So your mother not only abandoned you, but then jettisoned the person who you had achieved another connection with. Yes. So that's kind of a buried theme in this piece, is of abandonment and ejection in early life between with you and your father, connecting you and your father. Well, my father is much more important in the book than my mother. My father, my relationship with my father was difficult, much more complicated than my relationship with my mother. I loved my mother in a simple way, but I was always afraid of abandonment. That's one of the traumas of my life. 
My father didn't have any desire to abandon me. He adored me. I was his son. I was his only child. And he had a tremendous love for me. My mother was more difficult. She was cold. She was German. She had a kind of German temperament. So she was judgmental and sometimes quite difficult. She criticized me quite a lot when I was a child and when I was older. And I feared her, I feared losing her love. What were the criticisms? And were they valid? Well, both my parents criticized me for being too English. That's part of my trauma. It's part of what the book's about. My mother would say to me, why are you wearing that ridiculous blazer? You look like a silly Englishman. Or why do you always talk in that posh accent? Why don't you talk in a more, I don't know, relaxed way? Because you aren't really English. Well, you thought I'm being given... I'm being forced into a very tough cultural situation. But I have to, uh, to cobble together an identity, and I'm doing the best I can. Correct. And my book is really about my identity. And it's like if I'm going to pick a pair of shoes, I might as well go with Gucci's. Well, exactly. Is that, is that where the poshness in your accent comes so, from? Well, my, the poshness in my accent just came naturally from my social connections as a child. Because they'd signed you up for Eaton. They signed me up for Eaton. So, so they in a sense, they had set you, they'd set you up to do these things and then faulted you for doing them. Correct. That was my, that was part of my problem. I couldn't satisfy them. They thought I was somehow pretentious. Now, does that come from an, a, a sadism on their part, or is that simply two people whose world has collapsed in a new world encountering some of the strangeness and sorrow of raising a child in a new culture, which is you and your child are not going to be running a lot of the same cultural, call it software, and well, that there is sadness in it, that. It's similar to the, you know, the problem of working-class parents who have children who go to college, where the children now talk differently and have different interests. Products of a different culture. Products of a different culture. So there's alienation within a family there's because the family, within a family, precisely because the family has succeeded. Yes. It's a strange punishment for success. Yes. Yeah. So my father would accuse me sometimes of being, you know, a kind of poseur or a fraud, and my mother too. And I couldn't do anything about it except to smile, laugh, joke about it. I to mean, pose and, and defraud. Well, in a way, yeah. I mean, it was. And my whole life, I mean, the book is, the book is called, you know, um, I mean, it's about being an outsider. Well, the book, books had many working titles because it's been in work for a while it's lone wolf which seems to speak to your dad or a not, another through line between you and no your dad it's no longer called lone wolf it's now called it's now called um citizen of nowhere citizen of nowhere and that's a quote citizen of nowhere but then and then in or in between or earlier there was an atlantis reference a, a reference was, to a lot the fallen there, world of atlantis there was there was i've had i've played around with the title I'm now stuck. I'm now but all, satisfied. All of the titles speak to either the macro event of a cultural world vanishing, collapsing, call yep. it what you want, yep. 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 and then the toll on the individual, which is, to, which is loneliness and anime and That's disconnection. Right. That's correct. That's exactly what it's about. You know, we're going through a... Peter, have you tried the cheese today? I haven't. You've got to try it. I will. You've got to tell me what you think of it. I'm curious. Because it's special cheese. Very special cheese. It's, right. it's special cheese. Have a piece. Tell me what you think. It's very good. You know, it's Irish. 
<laughs> it's, our, it's Dublin Irish cheddar, Peter. I knew you'd love it. <laughs> but I think of the Irish in America. I think there's a story just before he was assassinated. John F. Kennedy went to visit Ireland and he stood before what he thought was a dumpy factory. And he said, you know, if my ancestors hadn't left this place, I might be working in that factory. And he had no idea that these were like the best jobs for, you know, miles and miles and miles, right? He was alienated from whatever that truth had been. It was unimaginable to him because he'd grown up in Bronxville. Right. Right. So this, the, the cost of alienation from a world is, a, is something we see a lot of in history. 1914 with migrant groups, we see it all the time. Um, we're going through a mental health epidemic in this country right now, or a mental health crisis with COVID, which has destroyed so many, which has destroyed a world as, as we knew it. And I think it's unclear what world is going to follow. Are we living in a post-Atlantis moment in America today? Does that even interest you, or, or is it too provincial for you to bother with? No, I think we are. I mean, I actually do think, you know, there are many post-Atlantis moments in history. If you were alive and conscious in 1918, you would have regarded what had just happened, World War I, as one of the great turning points of history. What happened before what life was like before and what life was like afterwards for a European was entirely different. Now, Americans did not experience World War I the same way. They went over there, they fought, they think they won the war. At the sure. very end. Well, you know, you're interrupting me. Is that all right? Yeah, we're having a conversation. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's not a monologue, you narcissist. No, no, no. It's not Stop a being an only child. It's not a they monologue. Fought, America fought at the very end, but it was basically a sleepover. Like F. Scott Fitzgerald's yeah. experience of the war was hanging out with people from different regions and then going home. No, and for America, it was not a great break with the past. But it was actually, now that we look back on it, the moment when a provincial regional power that had fought a civil war and a war with Spain suddenly entered the world of big powers. Suddenly there was France, suddenly there was Germany, suddenly there was Great Britain, there was Russia. America was not really part of the great big world until 1918. It entered World War I very late, and it had a very low uh, casualty rate. It lost 100,000 lives compared to 4 million French and 6 million Germans. But the fact is, it was a very significant moment for the Europeans. It was also the birth of the dollar, because while we weren't fighting in the earlier, in the first three years, we financed the whole thing. Yes, So all of the European gold is, is, blood is soaking through European soil as European gold is floating across the Atlantic to America and war materials are going into Europe to prolong the slaughter. It was, it was very unfair, because Europe needed to, be, to finance the war. We were in the devil's seat in this and whole America, time. America, who had entered the war as a debtor nation, ends up in the it being ends like up China in the today. Position. It was Correct. China. He was able to finance the whole damn thing, and everybody owed America money. The word civilization is made by the English and the French, right? Which means there's one really ideal way of ordering things, and we have it. And you just can't say that anymore after you slaughtered your, you know, a full generation for for like a couple yards of soil in the Somme. So there's a, there's, a, there's a discrediting from which I don't think Europe ever recovers, certainly stretches of Europe. Oh, Europe never recovered from no. World War One. I. I mean, in lots of ways. 16 million died. World War Two, 80 million died. So if you want to talk about slaughter, 
World War Two is far more sanguinary, bloody. Well, your World War Two is all arguably just Act Two of World War One, right? You can view them as the same well, you conflict. you can also say that World War Two was a continuation of World War One. Correct. But I mean, America did not emerge out of World War One with any credit. No. Woodrow Wilson was a fool, in my opinion. He had all these balmy ideas about the fourteen points and. the League of Nations. Well, he couldn't. He couldn't get and the League of Nations. Woodrow right Wilson. Woodrow Wilson plants the seeds of the American colonial embarrassment, Vietnam, during the Paris Peace Conference, when he refuses to meet with Ho Chi Minh, who's there, washing dishes, hoping to get an audience, and learns the hard way that well, w- Wilson's a racist, and self determination only really exists for white countries. Wilson was a racist, as you say, and he was also incredibly naive. I mean, Clemenceau and Lloyd George had no time for him. They could hardly bear to be in the room to hear his sanctimonious Christian you know, nostrums about the way the world should be. And he got nothing done. And then he had a stroke. So he was unable to function. His great progressive legacy may be that his wife actually ran the country for a good chunk of time. She did, she <laughs> did, she did. And unknown to the American people, she ran the country. But the truth is, you know, America tried to pose as the solution in 1918 to the problem. The problem was nationalism, secret treaties, you know, and an old European order which had been laid down perhaps in 1815 at the Congress of Vienna. And Woodrow Wilson thought he knew better. He was American. He was modern. But actually, he screwed it up. And I would argue that World War II is partly the fault of America. As hot a ratings draw as Woodrow Wilson is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer that we take from World War I an appreciation of mass death events as discrediting civilizational events that create individual psychological trauma by rupturing narratives, as happened to your father. We are, li- we are coming through, maybe are in the middle of, who knows, a mass death event, no denying that. No, no doubt and a discrediting event in that the U.S. Treasury has done to get through this event what European treasuries did to get through their own mass death event, World War I, printing money endlessly, debauching the currency. And we have a mental health crisis in this country right we do. now. We I mean, do. As, you, as you nip into a little bit of vodka, which is your right, I mean, alcohol sales are up like 40% year over year in COVID. Right. It mainly, um, I think it's more among women who are, are, of course, are caregivers more than men, right? So they're bearing more of the brunt. A word that it's come, been on my mind lately is intermundus, a space between worlds, that individuals take comfort in what you would call the Atlantis, living in a world that has strong explanations, in a world that is flawed, but maybe running at what you might call peak form. And when those worlds collapse, what you have is psychological trauma for the individual. There's no question. There's absolutely no question that we're living through a world of trauma, a world of mental instability, a world of shock, and there's no question that the pandemic is a world historical event. I mean, I think that 9-11 was a world historical event too. So we have only 20 years to separate the two. But I do think that the pandemic is a world historical event which has changed the way people see their future, their present, and it's actually caused a great shock. And not just in one country, two countries, ten countries. It's caused that shock 
all over the world. Yeah. And there are very few events that have that kind of global reach. So we are actually suffering from post-traumatic stress. A lot of teenagers apparently are in quite serious trouble psychologically. Well, can you imagine what, the, I mean, assuming you have communities that are really doing this, but I think they are. I, th I think public schools are enforcing mask mandates. The cost on a five-year-old or someone who's now five, who was three and a half when this started, of having the human face concealed for most of the day in their early development? I think it's very traumatic. I mean, I have a granddaughter who is four, and I mean, she's kind of confused about all this. She goes to daycare, but they ha they wear masks, and the adults there keep their distance, and it's all very strange. And she's she asks questions about it. She doesn't know what it means, but I think it will scar her for life. Now, your dad adapted to the post to the collapse of the German world. He did. By becoming literally a publisher in English, correct? I mean, well, that was a publisher in English in England, yes. But your mother was an actress and was never able to adjust. She was always... Well, my mother couldn't continue. Always had a foot in the past. Yeah, well, no, she was very good at adapting, but she couldn't continue her chosen profession. She felt... I mean, there were other actresses um, like Ingrid Bergman or like uh, Greta Garbo or like... Uh, many others actually, uh, Marlene Dietrich, who decided that they could act in another language. Hedy Lamarr. Hedy Lamarr, for example. My mother knew Hedy Lamarr quite well, but my mother decided, perhaps she was a coward, but she decided she couldn't act in another language. She actually mastered English far better than my father did. My father spoke with a strong Austrian accent Hang on, Peter. In England, and this everybody is thought it was very charming. Yeah, okay. I mean, what can we do? Um, uh, everybody thought it was very charming the way my father spoke, but he had a very strong foreign accent. My mother did not. She actually, as a good actress and a good mimic, mastered English pronunciation, and you couldn't tell sometimes. People were not always sure whether she was English or whether she was something else, and they didn't know what the something else was. But she felt she couldn't act in another language. She couldn't make it authentic. So she gave up her acting ambitions. Now, as I said on the way into this, I don't know if you just read me the most beautiful watercolor landscape of a winter night in the past or the saddest story I've ever heard. Mixed in there is your father's infidelity, but the whistling as he comes home. It's your mother coming back to you, but it's also the abandonment and the the ejection of the nanny which I guess is so painful that it didn't even make it in there it didn't make it in there so when, because when you look back as we've discussed here you you rosy things up the the historical reaction to the Spanish flu was to pretty much minimize the hell out of it well it was partly national security how is that there was a war on you know, it began during but it's not taught in schools it was a mass death event that is just curiously absent well, from know, American texts during the war uh, it, it, it arose during the war, and for reasons of national security, it was basically ignored. And also, you know, the fact was that um, a lot of people did not get the Spanish flu, and rather like now, they simply poo-pooed it. They thought it was nothing. So 
For many people, the Spanish flu is not a historical event. They don't know about it. They never heard about it. Nobody talked to them about it, including my own family. My grandfather died of it. But it wasn't mentioned to you. But it wasn't mentioned. You know, I was saying to uh, one, to Elizabeth Spires, who I generally turn to for optimism, that, well, global warming, probably going to be more pandemics, and God knows what RNA technology is going to do. We're going to have designer babies soon. And all these things hold the possibility of an amazing new world to come. There might be a world where there is no cancer. There might be a world after global warming where there's a steady state economy where people have kind of been shocked into giving up this, this the capitalist gluttony, right? Endless expansion. But it's going to be 50 years off and not even our lifetimes. She said to me, yeah, and worse, they're not even going to remember us. They're going to expunge us from the record. That's right. Because humans don't like to think back and look at plagues. Humans, plagues. humans don't like to think back and look at plagues. You're absolutely right about that. They don't like to look back on bad experiences, although... They'll make a narrative of progress to explain how they got where they are. Well, I would say that there are two narratives in the 20th century that belie that. One is World War I in England and in France, to a lesser extent everywhere else. World War I in England is remembered as the great tragedy, the pity of war. The poets, Wilfred Owen, Robert Graves, all these people were incredibly, uh, they were very good actually uh, in literary terms, but they were also remembered. I used to go to school every morning on my own feet when I was, I don't know, seven. I walked from our house to my school, it wasn't very far, and I would pass a lot of houses which had a plaque on the front, near the front door. And the lines are, um, as the sun sets and in the morning, we shall remember them. It's a line from an Edmund Blunden poem, a World War I poet, about death. The English were incredibly sentimental about what had happened and very, very um, emotional about it. And every year there were celebrations, not celebrations, there were memorials, uh, the Poppy Day uh, in November, you know, the war ended at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. And at that moment, you know, London falls silent to this day. And there are guns, you can hear the 21 gun salute in Hyde Park. It's extraordinary. Nothing like that exists here. People don't remember the past in the same way because it wasn't quite so traumatic. The same is true of the Battle of Britain and Dunkirk. The British remember those things, and the Blitz. The British remember all that with a kind of sentiment that's unknown in America. Americans want to forget. They think they won the war. They, they got to the beaches of Omaha. And they think that was what destroyed Hitler. It's not true, but that's what they like to believe. Yeah. But the fact is the British have a kind of melancholy about it, and the French well, too. You know, even the Irish men in me, Peter, does feel that as horrendous as your empire was, and as curiously as you seem to have gotten away with it just because your accents are pretty, which I still don't understand. <laughs> um, I like that. The moral 
example of fighting the Nazis under a madman, Churchill, but a principled madman on the right side of history, right. when it didn't seem like you were going to win, was in some sense an act of contrition for all the horrible crap you'd done before. Whether or not you knew it was that, I don't know. But looking back, you, you have made it a moral asset. We never thought of it that way. I mean, you're... But it was a rare, deeply... Because you're descended from the Irish. It was a, You're terribly conscious of colonialism. We didn't help we're, you. We're not. We didn't... We don't think about colonialism. Of course not, way. because the psychopath doesn't think about his victims. Well, I, I, I slightly differ with you on that. I don't think the British Empire... Why has there been no British apology to all of the colonized people? Why do you act like you're all a family? That's, to no, me, that's sickness. Why is that's like no, a cult leader who molested people being no like, American, well, we were all out in the desert no, together and you know things got no, a little why is murky. No, why is there no American apology to the Philippines? There ought to be. Hundreds of thousands of Filipinos were killed by the American Marines in you know 1898. Come on. Countries don't apologize easily. But I think America is in the throes of a deep self-examination, or at least half of America. I guess England is too. I mean, well, statues are coming down. The statues are coming down. Jefferson, Jefferson of all people, is coming down in New York this week. Amazing. Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, there's a statue in City Hall. Oh, he's always my least favorite they one. They removed him. Because, you know, people talk about Jefferson being like this Francophile and importing, you know, all of his inventions. And to me, that just makes it worse because he has no excuse. Well, I would say that in all, Dana, in all our discussions, the thing we don't talk about is the thing that the generations that are younger than us think about most, which is global warming. There's a real horror of what's coming. There is a great deal of knowledge that's, right. that's been accumulated by people of you know, Greta Thunberg's generation about what is happening, and there is real anger that our generation is doing practically nothing. The, the crime of racism is so entangled with the crime of land theft. Yeah, and, well, and both of those are so, or lead so quickly to abuse of the land. The destruction of the ecosystems of this home that we live on called the planet Earth. This is, the, this is issue one. There is no other issue. We can't go to space. I mean, the idea of Bezos and, and um, you know, all these people trying to, you know, pretend that sending rockets into the inner atmosphere of our planet is somehow no. a smart move. This is nonsense. I mean, I my theory is We're that... We're not going to have a future on Mars. I think Elon Musk has a real business launching satellites, and I think in terms of the other vanity projects, they may just be extreme safe rooms. So if something horrible happens on Earth... Could you hang out up there for 10 years and come back when the shit settled down? I don't think so. Maybe. I doubt it. Well, I then what's the point? Bunkers in New Zealand and space travel. Financial so it's just Jeff Bezos stroking his cock. Yes. That's it. Absolutely. Peter, we, we have a sponsor, actually, which I'm excited about. And we, we just was hoping at the end you could read a little a word from them. As they they want to they want to get at our audience. So here here it is. This is just you know to, to defray some of our expenses that, a little bit. Make sure fucking make sure to get the microphone. Why are you so interested in fucking Ireland? It's a boring subject. No, just read it. That's our sponsor. Hold the microphone up so it's so we can. Begin your journey in Kerry, 
where the romantic lakes of Killarney have been drawing honeymooners for centuries. Your package includes a romantic cruise on the lake and a horse-drawn carriage journey through Killarney National Park. Continue to Galway, where the bustling city is often regarded as Ireland's liveliest, and then further west, the cast lake speckled landscape of Connemara provides a significant contrast. The final leg of your journey will be spent in Clare, which is most famous for the magnificent cliffs of Moha with their awesome Atlantic views. <laughs>